get a Bible to you. Uh, a couple of quick announcements before we dive into uh, the Bible study this evening. On uh, March 25th, we'll be having a church family dinner. Uh, once again, so all of you are invited to that. If you're new to Calvary Chapel Miami, you're welcome to attend and you sign up for that at uh, calvarymiami.com slash events. So again, if you're new to the church, you can sign up for that. Uh, we want to cover your meal. Uh, one of the pastors and their families wants to be able to sit down with you, get to know you, and uh, talk with you. We also have a water baptism coming up April 17th. That's a Saturday morning at South Point Beach Park. Uh, so especially if uh, you've recently gotten saved or rededicated your life to the Lord, or perhaps you invite someone to come on out on uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and they get saved, that's a great uh, event to attend afterwards. Uh, but man, we're so blessed to be able to be gathered here tonight and uh, to be able to, it's a bittersweet day, right? Good Friday. I'd love to talk to some people say, hey, why is this Friday so good, right? Um, but bittersweet to think of the price that our Lord has paid, uh, but the goodness that, man, now we have victory over the grave. We have victory over sin. Uh, so tonight we're going to have some of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel, Miami. We're going to go through the last seven statements of Jesus on the cross. Uh, so going to have Jerry, ask Jerry to come on up, and he'll start us off. And then the different pastors will be coming up. Hi, family. Uh, please turn with me to Luke 23. And as you're turning, let's pray. Jesus, we, we're not worthy to be here listening and learning of you and, and even to be called your child or to have the opportunity to receive your gift of salvation. We are not worthy. We come to you. Teach us. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We pray for your conviction. Open our minds, our eyes, our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 23, verse 33, we read, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God. It's important as we're going through the words of Jesus on the cross to understand that Jesus on the cross is God, is God, and is fully human. Jesus came not only as God, but fully human and experienced a lot of the things that we have experienced. In Hebrews 4.15, for the sake of time, we're not going to go to each verse, but in Hebrews 4.15, we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, 
but was in, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Second John chapter 1, 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. John 1, 14, The word became flesh. To say that Jesus has, in his earthly ministry, had something that gave him the, the power, the ability to, to endure the suffering on the cross is wrong. That is a lie. It's, it's the same suffering that we feel, the same things that we feel. The Word of God says that he was born, born of a woman. He grew. That's in Luke uh, 2.40. He grew tired in John 4.6. He got thirsty in John 19. Hungry, Matthew 4. He became physically weak, bled, suffered. To think that in his DNA or, or something about him was different than us in, the, in, in our humanity cheapens the sacrifice. It was a true sacrifice to replace our sin. He took the penalty on the cross for our sins. So we see Jesus on the cross, God fully human. We see his character by saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. When someone is going through difficulty, when you and I are going through difficulty, when you see a friend going through difficulty, when you see them going through trials, you see their true character. And what could be more difficult than being crucified and being on the cross? And Jesus Christ saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's God's character. In Psalm 86, we read, For you, Lord, we know Jesus is God. It's speaking of God. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. These people that he prayed for on the cross, whatever happened to them? What we read in, in Acts, God's love in Acts 3, 14, Peter is addressing the people in Jerusalem, in Judea. A lot of these people were there mocking, you know, saying that God, if you're really uh, Jesus, if you're really God, come down making fun of him, gloating about his, his, um, his suffering. In Acts 3, Peter says to the crowd, that's a lot of those same people, but you denied the Holy One and the just and have asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. But in God's love, later on we read, the offer is made to simply say, repent, therefore, and be converted. After all they did, repent and be converted, and your sins will be blotted out. So times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And in Acts 4.4, we read, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That was just the men. Imagine the women and children listening. And even before that, in, in chapter 2, 
Paul, uh, Peter's talking to another crowd there in, in, in Jerusalem. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And again, the offer is made, repent, repent. And it goes on to say, for the remission of sins, and it goes on to say, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That shows you God's love. It's not only to forgive. It's not only to pray on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But he's reaching out even more beyond the cross and over and over and reaching out. And we read later on that 3,000 people came to the Lord here. And he makes it so easy. We, all we need to do is repent and turn to him. And not only does he want to give you the gift of salvation to be free from your sins, but then he gives you the Holy Spirit on top of that. He gives you more. There has to be somebody here today or somebody listening that you have fought the Lord, that you have been given opportunity over and over. I know because I was one of those. And I would accept the gift of salvation but then it wasn't really me accepting it. It was for another ulterior motive. So it was superficial. I never understood how free it is, how free that gift is, and how, how much Jesus loves me and loves us, that it's free and it's clear and, and there's no conditions behind it. For those of you here that have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as Jesus said on the cross, you do not know what you're doing. I say in all love and, and humility, you do not know what you're doing. But God is offering, offering that hand, offering that peace, off giving you that opportunity. We're frail. Time goes quickly. Time is shorter than we think. God has so much that he wants to give you, so much that he wants to deliver you from, your doubts, your fears, your anxieties. The pending de destiny of those who reject Jesus is to have wrath and to be in hell. In John 3:36, we read, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So that wrath abides, but the opportunity is there just by simply coming to him. If I have, I've had people that um, offended me and, and it's hard to forgive and, but it's even harder when they don't come and say and ask for forgiveness it, it's, there's like an elephant in the room and that's how it is with Jesus if we don't come to him if we don't surrender for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ two words I have for you know and remember know that you're forgiven God does not hold a grudge he does not dwell on the guilt. He does not dwell on the shame. So you don't dwell on the guilt and don't dwell on the shame. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it reads, Therefore, if anyone is, Christ, is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Hebrews 10:22 let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience God forgives us we see that in Jesus's character but we don't forgive ourselves and we dwell on the same things that we have done over and over those things that God has wiped clean because we've come to him and we've asked for forgiveness and he's been faithful to forgive us if Jesus who is God on the cross prayed for the people that were tormenting him torturing him mocking him father forgive them they know not what they do how much more how freely is he going to give forgiveness to us who have accepted him we have accepted him it's free it's there And the second thing I say to us that know and have received that gift is to remember. Remember how much you have been forgiven. Remember, I, I easily forget, God has forgiven me for so many things that I don't deserve to be here. And I know many of us are that way. But we forget. So remember. And as you remember and as you see his love and as, as you remember all the things that he has delivered us from, Let that build in you a joy, a gratitude, and a desire to forgive those here or the friends or those among us, even the people at work, whoever it is that has offended you. Let that love that Christ gave us be manifested through us to others. So um, I guess who's next? Pastor Raz. So let's just pray real, real quick, I guess. Okay. Let me just pray before we... Uh... So Jesus, we thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you that you make it free and easy for us. We, all we need to do is come to you. You want us to have a relationship with you. And you want to forgive us. You want to give us that gift. You want to fill us with your Holy Spirit. So we say yes. And we receive whatever it is you have for us. Forgive us. We repent in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry. If you open right there in Luke chapter 23, um, it's good to think with you on the question tonight, why is Jesus on this cross? Why is Jesus hanging on the cross? Uh, how does that apply to you and to me today? Pick up with me there in verse 40, um, 39. <laughs> Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. For those of you that are note takers, you want to write down Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, Matthew 27, 44, and in Mark 15, 32, it also tells us about these two criminals. Jesus Christ is crucified with a criminal to his left and a criminal to his right. It's an interesting thing that as you look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there's different people represented there. The religious power brokers, the religious leaders. And the way that they respond to Jesus in the crucifixion is they sneered at him. That is a word that means to smile, to laugh, to make facial contortions, but you're expressing scorn and contempt. 
So the religious leaders, they're just like scorning Jesus. Then you have the political leaders, the political power brokers, and the way that they respond to Jesus, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they're mocking Jesus. That's a word that also means contempt, but with ridicule. So they're scorning Jesus. They're making facial expressions at Jesus. They're ridiculing Jesus. And that's the religious and the political leaders. Then you have the family. How did the family respond to Jesus? The family, the friends. Well, the way they respond to Jesus is they run. And that's another way of saying they're denying Jesus. They're betraying Jesus. How about this word? They're abandoning Jesus. You have the religious leaders, you have the political leaders, you have the family, and then you have the criminal element. And at the beginning of the crucifixion, you have two, one at the left, one at the right. And how do they respond to Jesus? Well, they insulted Jesus. They're treating Jesus with disrespect, with abuse. So now I call your attention again to the 23rd chapter here in Luke. And then one of the criminals, in the midst of everybody insulting, scorning, running, abandoning Jesus, the whole world is against Jesus, all of a sudden, this criminal, it tells us that the other, verse 40, the other answered and rebuked the one that had blasphemed Jesus. And so he asked him that question, and he says, don't you even fear God seeing that you're under the same condemnation? Don't you have any fear of God? I mean, what I can see this guy, you know, and he's saying in modern-day vernacular, yo, or dude, in Spanish, oyeme, pero caramba, tú no temes a Dios ni en esta condenación. And I think with you tonight, what does it take for the fear of God to grow in me? What does it take? And that's what this thief on the cross is doing. But you got to see something here. Something is just happening. Some Bible scholars believe that this guy never blasphemed God. Other Bible scholars believe, like Matthew and Mark tell us, that they both were blaspheming God. When we get to heaven, you could ask. But whether he was or whether he wasn't, One thing I know is that at this moment, at this place, at this time, there's something that's happening in this man. There's a reverence. There's a respect. There's a fear of God. All of a sudden, life is flashing before him very quickly, and there's a summary here. I'm going to face God. No excuses, no attorneys, no no black lives matters, no nothing. I'm going to face God. And right now I fear God. And I want you to see here that not only does he fear God, but the next thing that you see here is that he takes a side. When you fear God, you want to be on God's side. And look at what he says here. I love this. I left my glasses at home. I I told my wife, I don't know if I remember how to do this, so pray for me. Elias, your, your mom used to pray for me, and God would answer. So pray for me right now that God would answer. But But here you see that he does something else. He says here, We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Summarize what we're going through right now, 
I deserve it. I sowed these seeds, and now I'm reaping. I am reaping what I have sown. That's what he's saying there. And so what I want you to see here is that he has a fear of God, and then he has a confession of his sin. He's assuming responsibility for his wrongdoing. He's not making excuses. It's not that I was born or I have this or my family or my color or the white people or the black people or the I can't believe I ran out of time. I just got one minute. (laughs) Summarize, because I am going to end on time. I owe you so much time. Plus, I got to give a good example. He said, we deserve what we're getting. Fear of God. Number two, confession of his sin. Number three, a confession of who Jesus was. This one is done no wrong. And then the public declaration, the public profession of faith. He says to Jesus, hey, when you return in your kingdom, he realizes that Jesus is crucified, crown of thorns. He is bleeding. He's been spat upon. He, he's, he's beyond human recognition. But this thief, this criminal, all of a sudden he recognizes, say, I know crime. I know sin. I know criminals. But this guy? I've never seen a guy like this before. He's done no wrong. And he's the coming king. Not a king. He's the king. And then he says to Jesus something which is amazing because it shows humility. Would you just remember me? I don't even deserve to be in your kingdom. If you just remember me. But there's something beautiful here. He speaks to Jesus as the king that Jesus is. And when you come to Jesus and you speak to Jesus like who Jesus is, then he's going to answer you like who Jesus is. And then Jesus said to him, surely, surely, I say to you that today you are going to be with me in paradise. I have so much to say. I'm still under my time. They said up to eight minutes, but let me finish with this. In the death, Jesus is doing what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? To make people right with God. That's why Jesus came. His death and resurrection is going to prove that. But so that there will be no doubt in case there's any skeptic here today, in case there's anyone that you're holding back on Jesus, anyone here, even before he dies, Jesus proves the case and he says, I came with a mission. And as he's dying, this one man that came to Jesus as who Jesus is, he made this man right with God. Are you right with God? This man converted. This is a conversion experience. This man was blind. Now he sees. This man was lost. Now he's found. Paradise is great. But the three words of Jesus is paradise with me. In that moment, Jesus says, I'm with you. You are with me. And never will anything come between us again. 
There's no divorce. There's no crime. There's no separation. The nation that gave you freedom, that freedom might be quickly disappearing so that you would see that the only one that can give you freedom is the Son of God, Jesus, who died on the cross, and we looked at his second statement. What was that? Truly, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Next person, come up. Father, we pray. Continue to speak to us tonight. We need you, Lord. We need to be converted. We need to be right with you, God, not with our mind, not with our rationale, not with our self-righteousness, not with our political persuasion. Lord, we need to be right with you. And only Jesus, only you can do that. So the same way you did it with the thief on the cross, Lord, do it with me. Do it with us here tonight. We pray. Amen. I had to give Pastor Ash some of my time, so I can finish it. John 19, verse 26. It's the third statement from the cross. John 19. I'll start reading in verse 25. By the time you get to verse 26, you'll catch up with me because time is short. So John 19, starting in verse 25. says, Now therefore stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore, verse 26 now, John 19. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now, before looking at the impact of this statement um, I want to consider the source that uh, gives that statement. Uh, notice in verse 10 uh, this contrast where Pilate portrays himself in the same chapter as a man of power. Uh, but he's actually powerless. In verse 10, Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Is what Pilate says. And so as Jesus stands before this man in power, uh, he inflates his actual power to seem more powerful than he really is. He says that he had the power to release him or to crucify him. And ironically, he uh, was actually manipulated by the people. He was bound to the Roman laws. And he ultimately was ignorant of God's power and God's plan. And this reminds me of another ruler in Scripture in Daniel chapter 5. Verse 19, just as Pilate was filled with this pride, so was Nebuchadnezzar. And his thoughts in Daniel 5.19, they're revealed. And he thought, he says, I have the power to bring people up. I have the power to bring people down. And he mistakenly was convinced of this power. And he said in his heart, in that verse after, uh, in Daniel 5, says he was lifted up. And as he was lifted up, it says his spirit was hardened with pride, and his glory was gone from him at that moment. And now, however, Daniel, you guys, if you know the story, uh, his friends, Daniel's friends, weren't fooled by Nebuchadnezzar's self-appointed power. 
As these Hebrew boys put it, they told Nebuchadnezzar, this is the case. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods. And so in studying the book of Daniel in the mornings with LHM, going through it, this theme of parenting has jumped out uh, over and over from its pages. What kind of moms and dads did these young Hebrew boys have that as they grew up now as to be teenagers, they had the fortitude to, in the face of death, stand up to it and be in control? And the prayer is that, man, I would raise my kids in a way that if the world attempts to take them captive, they will stay the course and they won't deviate. May I raise them up so that when uh, the Nebuchadnezzars of this world come against them, they would stand unwavering. And so in contrast to Pilate, who had this self-proclaimed power, and Nebuchadnezzar, there was the true power. And as Pastor Raz described, the true power to forgive sin, the power of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He answered Pilate in verse 11, said, Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. So Jesus, throughout his fiery trial, he knew who was truly in control. And because he knew who was in control, I believe he was able to be in control in that moment. So may we never forget who has the power. And now we're back to the scene, Jesus up on the cross with the label above his head. Not a label self-proclaimed, but a label put on him by the people who were crucifying him. King of the Jews. He was lifted up, but he wasn't lifted up like the other two guys in pride and humiliation. So as we examine the source, Jesus was lifted up. And this statement comes from a pure, a God-fearing, and a humble place. He displayed this true power on the cross for all to see. And so what does someone with absolute power the power to forgive sin. We know in a couple days the power to raise, be raised from the dead. What does someone like this choose to say on that cross? He chooses to say, woman, behold your son. And to his disciple, behold your mother. God allowed us just a little glimpse into this powerful but yet so tender and beautiful moment. And since the beginning, God made the union and the love of family it is a beautiful and wonderful part of God's amazing work. It says, right, in the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and thy mother. We forget what that means. But in Proverbs 23, 22, it says, listen to your father and despise not your mother when she is old. You know, here in the U.S., it's funny. The goals we have as parents for our kids and we want to leave them an inheritance. We want them to have a comfortable life so that they don't have the same struggles we did those are all nice United States things. But I want to look at what does the Bible have. And we see in Scripture this moment here at least. We're in John 19. That as kids, 
We are to be concerned for our parents, sometimes our elderly parents. And during this bizarre year that we just went through, who were the ones that kept saying, these are the most vulnerable, it was the elderly. Some of us, the elderly includes our parents. Mom, mom dad, you know. Still young in my eyes. But they got the elderly. And so as sons and daughters, man, are we preparing to make sure that our moms and dads are, are taken care of? Who is going to be responsible for them? You know, we're going to leave it to the government. We're going to leave it to um, that place up north where they retire and play golf. Who are we going to leave it to? If Jesus on the cross in an extreme moment of pain, humiliation, probably one of the most difficult moments in his life, was concerned about his mom's well-being, how much more as sons and daughters should we be concerned and praying for our parents? And so some of us, um, maybe some of you, you've lost a loved one recently. Bible commentator Matthew Henry on this scripture, he says, sometimes when God removes one comfort from us, he raises up another for us. Perhaps where we looked not for it. So in this case, this beloved disciple John was raised up for his beloved mother Mary. And John immediately acted on it. So for us, when do we act on it? Well, my parents are still young. They're not old. And it's now. It's the little decisions that as kids we make now, that they pave the way for our bigger decisions later in life. It says, love the Lord your heart with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love others as yourself. His mom here, Jesus' mom, wasn't concerned about what's going to happen to her. She wanted to attend and be as close to her son as possible. And the son, Jesus, was not concerned about his own pain and trial, but about his beloved mother. So the greatest moments of God's power are displayed in the greatest moments of God's selfless love. It says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it or preserve it. So to end, pride leads to a false sense of power. It ultimately leads to a pointless and pitiful death. True power leads to demonstrations of God's selfless love, which ultimately leads to a life saved, preserved, and with purpose. Woman, behold your son, and to his disciple he said, behold your mother. God, we pray that in these somber, uh, so, uh, uh, somber, sober, just uh, moments, Lord, of reflection of you on the cross, seconds, minutes, Lord, your statements, your words, may they pierce our hearts. God, we know it can, it can pierce even between the bone and the marrow, Lord, to the deepest parts of our hearts, God, that we would have 
your power, your purpose. Lord, we pray as, uh, as children for our parents. We pray as parents for our children. God, we need you and we know you're in control, Lord, and so we could be in control and have that self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit to make the right decisions on our everyday life and the choices we make, the way we choose to respond to things. Lord, we love you and we pray, uh, thanking you, God, for our family and our parents and this, uh, this demonstration of love that you showed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, family, I welcome you to turn with me to Matthew 27, verse 46, as we look at the fourth statement of Jesus upon the cross. And I was sitting back there, and I thought to myself, this has to be a record. This is the most youth I've ever seen on a Friday night. (laughs) But there in Matthew 27, as I hear the pages turning, we'll look at verse 45 and verse 46 quickly as we race with time. But there in verse 45, it says the following. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, verse 45, it says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, There was darkness all over the land. According to Roman calculation, the time, the six hours equivalent to 12 in the afternoon. And the ninth hour would be 3 p.m., give or take. And then we begin to see there in verse 45 that it's kind of like showing us, man, there's darkness over all the land. But why is that darkness there? It was an unusual darkness. It was a darkness that had never been experienced. And some may say, oh, it was just a solar eclipse. But it wasn't just any natural eclipse. It was a darkness that was remarkable. It was a darkness, you see, it was a time of Passover. And the Passover was held during a full moon. And it's impossible for there to be a natural eclipse of the sun at this time. See, it was a supernatural darkness. Spurgeon, he had this to say, the darkness is the symbol of the wrath of God which fell on those who slew his only begotten son. God was angry and his frown removed the light of day. The symbol also tells us what our Lord Jesus Christ endured. Verse 46, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And this verbiage, this, this cries out, It's only seen here in this portion of Scripture in the New Testament. And it indicates the powerful emotion and appeal that Jesus was making to God. 
You see, we see Jesus here quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's likely that he is stating this in Hebrew. And the reason being is because he didn't want the spectators to understand. See, he wasn't talking to them. This was directed to God. This wasn't meant for the ears of men. And I don't know about you, This is one of the most powerful statements in the history of the world. See, with this statement, what it means that even though Jesus had endured great pain, and we know that he did endure great pain during his time here on earth, and even though he went through all the suffering, both the physical and the emotional, he endured all that in his life, he had never known Separation from his father. And in this time in history, that happened. Second Corinthians 5.21 says the following. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's me, you. That's us here, family. God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, Jesus, he endured upon the cross the outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him. But more than that, the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, the only time in history. And as I close, because of time, I'll close In Luke 22, verse 42. And that says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, the act of being judged for sin when he had never sinned, the outpouring of the Father's wrath, All that is so much. But I got to think that this cup was the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship from his life. That there was a separation between God the Father and God the Son for the first time ever in the history of humankind. For the first time ever, period, there was this separation. And in Luke 22, he says, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. See, that is what Jesus dreaded about going upon the cross, that he knew there would be that withdrawal of fellowship. And I leave you with this, family. He knew that, and yet he still did it for you and for me. He took all of your sin, all of my sin, past present, future. He took it. He bore it for me and for you. Joy, I welcome you to come up. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, for giving us a hope when we had no hope. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
The fifth statement of Jesus from the cross was, I thirst. And um, we're getting near to the end, not just of the service, um, but the end of the crucifixion. John chapter 19, verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And it's so interesting, we have this juxtaposition of this tremendous spiritual agony uh, in the previous statement, and then this tremendous physical agony in the statement, I thirst. When Jesus said all things were now accomplished, so much prophecy in so many scriptures, the triumphal entry on Sunday, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9, the cleansing of the temple on Monday, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, the betrayal of Judas, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, and then the crucifixion. One verse from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Just think of how Jesus was treated um, in his time on earth, and now he's here. We're reminded at this moment of the human and physical suffering that Jesus endured, Jesus of Nazareth. We celebrate his birthday at Christmas. We read a story of him getting lost and his parents coming back to look for him. Uh, The exciting start to his earthly ministry. And now he's thirsty because he's dying. I think of those spy movies or those action movies where the good guy's tortured and uh, he won't give up the information. Uh, He won't give in. And uh, Jesus didn't sell you out. He couldn't, they couldn't break him. Uh, He wouldn't give in. The ultimate hero. Even in his suffering, he continues to fulfill scripture. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for somebody to take pity, but there was none. As for comforters, I found none. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm chapter 69, verses 20 and 21. Even in his suffering, we're reminded of his teachings. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He was thirsty so that we would never have to be. John chapter 6, verse 35. In his suffering, we look forward to our hope. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. I've never been uh, severely dehydrated, uh, but Tiffany got heat stroke once before we were married. Uh, She's a strong lady, and she wanted to prove it. She was much younger. Sorry, Tiff, for throwing you under the bus. It's a great illustration. And uh, she, she was walking, and they kept asking her, are you okay, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Until her legs gave out from under her, and she couldn't walk anymore. Uh, and she's on the floor limp. No, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> but her legs wouldn't carry her anymore. And uh, so her, her counselor, uh, Green Beret, or Army Ranger, Chris Morris, he put some leaves together and boiled them, and she was right as rain in, in a bit. But... Um, Jesus was dying. A theory is that Christ died from shock. Certainly any of the forms of shock and their causes could have played out during Christ's final ordeal. Traumatic from tissue, injury, and pain, or hypovolemic shock from diminished circulating fluids due to bleeding and dehydration, or carcinogenic due to a weakness of the heart to continue pumping blood to vital organs. He had lost so much blood and fluid at this point that he couldn't profuse to his body anymore. He was literally dying of thirst. His organs had no water and no fluid to function. He's almost done. And he did it for us. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. It is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. This is the sixth statement that Jesus made at the cross. John 19, verse 30. And it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The word, it is finished, is the Greek word, tetesoslai, which translates to the end, complete, execute, conclude, discharge, adapt, accomplish, make an end, expire, filled up, Finish, go over, pay, and perform. And and as we come to the sixth statement, and Jesus proclaimed that the work it is finished. What work was finished at this point? And if we go back to uh, John chapter seventeen. And this is Jesus right before he gets arrested. Jesus right before he goes to the cross. He gets alone into a time to have this prayer time before God the Father. And in chapter 17 it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
The hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And his eternal life, that they, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom, have, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which you have which you had with you before the world was. And even as Jesus, at the beginning of creation, he was with God the Father in the creation of everything in this universe, in this planet, even as he created us. Uh, God and him, uh, they had to be, at, uh, even as we look into the uh, Genesis when there was the fall of man, there was a plan set in heaven. As God and Jesus knew that they had to be at, as somebody to come in and finish the work. What work? The work of just restoring, restoring once and for all this relationship between humanity and God the Father, the creator of us, our creator. Tetesla's lie is, is a, a work of a servant uh, that it had to be finished. And even as we look on the cross, and Jesus as Messiah, the one that was sent by God to take and make atonement to finish this work that had to be done through blood in order for us to enter in the, the heavenly realms. Jesus made the payment. Jesus was the servant of God that completed the task that he has sent them to do. And a lot of times as we as servants of God, those that have surrendered their hearts to Jesus Christ as Lord and King, and now we enter in in serving him, how many times do we finish the, the work that, had, that God has set for us? A lot of times as his servants, we don't finish. We throw in the towel, when circumstances overtake us, when we go through afflictions and trials and we bail out, we call it quits. We don't finish the work here on earth. And Jesus said, that's okay, I got it. I'm going to complete the work. And, and sometimes as we look at ourselves and we think that we're able to do the work we're able to accomplish, we're able to overcome. 
And we're so weak and helpless that without the work of Jesus Christ, we're not worthy to enter into the kingdom of heavens. God's high priest initiated this flawless work, this perfect work, this sinless sacrifice to be able to walk on earth without committing a sin. We miss the mark over and over and over. We can't do it on our own. And Jesus Christ being the artist of God, the poema, the masterpiece of God the Father here on earth. He paints this portrait of heaven through the redemption at the cross. This grand masterpiece, it was done through Jesus Christ at the cross. Our accountant that looks at the books and looks at the death through our sins, Jesus comes and says, I got it. I'm going to pay your debt and my debt at the cross. So payment was made in full at the cross for all our sins. As far as the east is to the west, it has been paid. All we have to do is just believe in Jesus Christ and payment is full. Heaven awaits. It is finished. The puzzle of life, it is done. Jesus finished this humongous puzzle. This humongous puzzle. He lifted up. And he said, it is done. Jesus invaded an imperfect world and made everything perfect with an eternal value. The totality, the perfection of the cross. If we look at Genesis 1.31, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed was very good. So evening and morning came, and that was the sixth day. So in the sixth day, God looks at creation and says, Everything is very good. And the sixth statement that Jesus makes is the finish of this perfection when it comes to the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in Genesis 2.1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Jesus also finished that work and he reunited with God the Father because the work for our sin was done. 
In Isaiah 53, it talks about what he endured at the cross. And for us, as we examine ourselves, how come? A lot of times, you know, when God gives us, even for us, you know, to serve him. And for us, it's a privilege to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we give so many excuses to bail out from the task that he has for us here on earth? No work, no school, no, you know, I got a birthday party. No, but, 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 but. Jesus didn't use the word but. He just said, it is done. And the work was done. So for us, may we be people that are just remember. Not that we ourselves have to bring anything to the plate. But it's all by the grace and mercy of God that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in Romans 3, 25 and 26, and whom God has set forth as an appropriation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be justified as the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All we have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah and Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There is no other way our good works are never good enough to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Only when we look at the cross and Jesus Christ, as he said, it is finished. Let's pray. Glorious Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord God, even as we find salvation in Christ Jesus as Lord and King. May today be the day that we come to repentance, that we cannot bring anything to the plate to inherit the kingdom of heaven. All we have to do is proclaim with our mouth that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord, and ask for his forgiveness. And then you're going to give us a first-class ticket into heaven. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus and the cross. Amen. Let's turn to Luke 23, Luke chapter 23, and we'll look at the last of the seven statements of Christ. Um, Luke 23, verse 44, it says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And we, we talked about that. It was between 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. And uh, this is the hottest, the brightest time of the day. You can imagine a, a, a time, a culture when the, 
the, uh, the technology was such as you, you didn't walk around with a flashlight in your pocket. Especially when it's a full moon, you wouldn't even have a torch if you were traveling at night because you just expect to be able to see at night when you were traveling. So imagine at the hottest, brightest time of the day, all of a sudden, everything's black. Um, it wasn't a local eclipse because it says here that it covered the face of the whole earth. Tertullian in the third century cited records at Rome saying that it was dark there as well. And if you read what it says here, it says, then the sun was darkened. The sun was darkened. It was prophesied in Amos chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight, and I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head, and I will make it like mourning for an only son. And its end shall be a bitter day. So we read there, it says, The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. In other gospels, it speaks of the fact that the earthquake quaked and rocks were split. Graves, which were often sealed with rocks, were opened and many were raised from the dead. And the veil was torn in the temple. We discussed this recently in services. That veil would have been between 60 and 80 feet high, 24 feet across, between 8 inches and 18 inches thick. And it was torn in half. I don't, even, I don't even think that, I mean, I'm, I'm probably showing my age, but the power team, those big muscle guys in, on TBN that used to break phone books, I don't think they could break the, the veil. And, and, and here you see, imagine the priests who would have been offering the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. inside of the temple, hearing the sound of it breaking, that place that only, they only went into once a year, and, and even then with bells around their waist in case they had some secret sin that would cause them to die, in the presence of a holy God, because that's how holy God was. And the veil was torn. And the veil that was the symbol of separation between God and man. That God had said, God is holy, and everything else is separate from him. And because it was finished, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because the price was fully paid, that was broken. Inside and beyond the Holy of Holies would have been the Ark of the Covenant. And now the presence of the Lord was exposed to everyone. It says that the veil was torn in two and it was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't torn from the bottom up like man tore it, but God tore it from the top down. And when Jesus heard, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The other, the other gospels tell us that he cried out with a loud voice. If you keep reading, I want to read these next verses and come back. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this man was a right, this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together at that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching those things. So he cries out with a loud voice. All the people who had gathered around came. At what point? When the, dark, when the sun was blacked out? Was everybody, did a hush kind of fall from the mockery that was taking place beforehand that now in the darkness, the people are, what, what, what's going on? 
They're gathering to where this is taking place. Does it happen when he cries out with a loud voice? When he says, Father, that term of endearment and intimacy that the other Hebrews would have thought, how can I ever speak that of God? Father. But he's used it so often, the intimacy that he had with his father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And that word commit, it means to place beside, near, or set before. It's used of entrusting something valuable to someone for safekeeping. It's used of making a deposit in a bank or entrusting someone into someone else's care. So if you're trying to pick a good babysitter, you're committing your child to that person's care, you know? Entrusting some. But here the Lord is using it. And in scripture, it's used as an illustration for a meal that's presented before, prepared and presented before guests. The Lord says, here I am taking this life, this sacrifice, this perfection of my offering, and I'm presenting it before the presence of the Lord. When he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, he was quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. And this idea of committing our lives and our souls and our spirits to the Lord isn't just something for him, but it also made such an impact on Peter. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 24, he said, For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. And you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. That Stephen was impacted by this. When he was martyred, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I read this uh, from Tozer, and I, I felt led to share it with you. God constantly encourages us to trust him in the dark. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches in secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, who call thee by thy name am the God of Israel. It is heartening to learn how many of God's mighty deeds were done in secret away from the prying eyes of men or angels. When God created the heavens and the earth, darkness was on the face of the deep. When the eternal sun became flesh, he carried for a time in the darkness of a sweet virgin's womb. When he died for the life of the world, it was in the darkness, seen by no one at the last. And when he arose from the dead, it is very early in the morning. No one saw him rise. It's as if God were saying, what I am is all that need matter to you, for there lie your hope and your peace. I will do what I will do, and it will come to light at last, but how I do it is my secret. Trust me and be not afraid." I think Paul said it best in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. But he said, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know, whom in and I know in whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him until that day. So Paul's essentially saying, I know him, so I can commit my soul to him. And if you're here... And Jesus was able to say that. I'm committing my soul to you, Father. 
Have you committed your soul to him? Because it's what he calls us to. And if you're not willing, if you haven't made that, then do you know him? Man, you got to get to know him. He's able to keep what you entrust into his care. The centurion recognized, he made a confession. That man was righteous. That man was the son of God. The crowds, they gathered together and they beat their breasts in mourning. And his companions stood afar off. So it's important for us to decide what our reaction and our response is going to be. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and worthy of our, of our trust, God. And I pray that you would bring us, Lord, to that place of trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so awesome how Chris ended, right? What, what do we do now? You know, in Acts with those great sermons with Peter, the, it's 40 days after Jesus has died and resurrected, and the people in the room, he's saying, you are the ones that have put the Son of God to death on the cross. You are the ones who are guilty. You are the ones who have put the Son of God to death. So that's why they cry out, realizing we are guilty. They say, what must we do to be saved? What must we do? We realize we're guilty. We realize we're the ones that has, have done this. What must we do to be saved? The problem is many of us here, we don't think we've done anything. We have nothing to do with the cross, right? We're not the ones that put him there. We have nothing to do with it. Uh, but thinking of Romans 6, in verse 11, it tells us, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of God for righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace." Again, that's the freedom we have been given because of this great sacrifice, because of this great pain and agony, because of this great prize, we've been given the freedom to not sin. So now every time we sin as believers, it's a decision that we're making. Before we had no choice, we had no option, but now we have the choice and option. And now what Romans is telling us is that we would tell sin, we would tell our flesh, we are closed for business. We are closed for business. There's no more sin reigning here. There's no more my flesh telling me what to do. There's no more my feelings or my emotions or my weakness telling me what to do. But from here on out, I am presenting my body as an instrument for righteousness. From here on out, it's just not, not presenting my body to sin and to unrighteousness. But from here on out, it's saying, Lord, I present myself as an instrument for righteousness, an instrument for you. Lord, I see and I believe and I want you to be the master over my life. So hey, the worship team, they're going to come up and there's going to be, all the pastors will be up front here. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. Maybe you're here and you're realizing, I am a sinner. I have done nothing to attain righteousness. I have done nothing to be able to get into heaven. I encourage you, come up front and pray with the pastors. But maybe you're here and you've been in church for years, and you're realizing you are not presenting your body as an instrument of righteousness. 
You're good with the fire insurance. You're good that you don't have to go to hell. But Romans convicts each and every one of us saying, stop allowing your body to be used for sin. Stop allowing your mind to be used from sin. And now instead, because of that great price, because of that great sacrifice, let's start doing something for the kingdom of God. Let's start deciding today, Lord, I present my life to you for righteousness. As you presented your life for me, for freedom from sin, for freedom from hell, and freedom from death. So hey, let's stand, and then we'll close in worship. The pastors, they'll be up front, and uh, you can come up. So Lord, we just love you. And again, God, we thank you so much for tonight, Lord. We thank you for the reminder of your sacrifice, Lord, for the free gift of eternal life for us, Lord. So precious, so costly, Lord, so expensive, God. Lord, I pray that we would not take it for granted, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't leave that gift, that freedom there on the altar, Lord, and do nothing with it, God. And again, Lord, may we do something with this incredible gift that you've given to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that truly each of us would be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, Lord. That we wouldn't be that unrighteous servant, Lord, or that wasteful servant, Lord, or that ungrateful servant, God. But that we would be that servant that is doing the most we can to live holy and righteous for you, Lord. The servant that's doing the most we can, Lord, to find other unbelievers, Lord, to find other lost people and bring them into the kingdom of heaven, God. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.